Radio. Let's talk pets. Hello, you're listening to Animal Party on Pet Life Radio with me, your host, Deb Wolf. And today, once again, we have back my favorite professor. Dr. Stan Corin, and uh, he's the author of Intelligence of Dogs and many other best-selling books, and he's an authority on that connection between humans and dogs. So I love to have him on the show to explore that. Welcome to the show, Stan. Glad to be here, Deb. Well, okay, so a lot's happened since we last talked. COVID has raced through and continued, and we've had our ups and downs with the pet world, wondering if they spread it, then they didn't spread it. And it seems to me that so many people have found pets therapeutic during this time. And it's like the dog's place in the family has elevated even more. And I'm so happy to see that. Are you noticing that? Yeah, there's been actually been a couple of studies which have looked at whether or not pets are helpful. And, and uh, the conclusions have been really quite interesting. Generally speaking, we find that individuals who have uh, a pet in the house tend to show considerably fewer signs, uh, psychological problems, if you will, uh, signs of depression and stress and that sort of thing. Now, it varies by pet. The research shows that if you have a dog, you get the maximal amount of support. If you have a cat, you still get a reasonable amount of support, although it's less than it is for a dog. The flock of animals, which I call potted or caged or that sort of thing, provide... Critters. I call them critters, like (laughs) gerbils and mice and birds and things like that. Or iguanas or whatever. Yeah, okay. Okay. You know, that flock provides, you know, a, a little bit of support, not... It's not worth writing home about, but it's, you know, it's above zero. Well, there's different kinds of support, right? There's the, the having something to care for that makes you kind of stay in the moment. Then there's the companionship. But then with the dogs, there's also the exercise. I think that's the, and getting you out of your bubble. Did you, I just want to interrupt just for a second about this funny story in the news. Montreal, part of their quarantine was, their lockdown was to say, you could only leave for essential reasons. And one of the listed acceptable essential reasons was you could leave your house if you were walking your dog. So this woman got arrested, her and her husband, because she stuck a collar and a leash on him and said, well, this is my dog. And they went for a walk. (laughs) And I just think, you know, if ever was a time that you want to have a dog, I mean, you're not even allowed out of your house without one. So I, I could see how a dog would be really helpful right now. Oh, yeah. I mean... Having a dog lets you out into the into the neighborhood also, which helps to provide for the social support. I mean, even if you, you have to mask up and stand six feet away from your, your neighbors as you as you go around the uh, with your dog, uh, that is added social support. And and if you you know otherwise would be alone, that's really important. I mean, it makes a difference. There are you know a couple of neighbors who you know, if they see me through the window, we'll step out on their porch and we'll have a chat from a 10, 12 foot distance and that sort of thing. Psychologists are really 
finding a tremendous amount of importance in what we simply call social support. And individuals who have sort of other individuals who they interact with really show up to be much more resilient, much more resilient, not only, I mean, this is part of the magic of this sort of thing, the whole mind-body business, is that these effects are not only on the psychological realm, but also on the physical realm. It's hard to imagine, but individuals who have the social support seem to be much more resilient and are better and able to fend off, if you will, physical problems, or it sort of ameliorates uh, existing physical problems. So, you know, dogs are, for me, my pets are dogs, but any pets during the uh, pandemic are uh, maybe not the silver bullet, but at least they are a good tonic, if you will. I do worry, you know, I'm overjoyed to see that I have only one rescue dog at the moment, and he just came in. This is the first time since 1997 that I've had only one or none. It's usually four or five, six. So people are adopting dogs, by the way, while I'm on the subject. He's a two-year-old, Great Pyrenees. He needs a home. He's terrific with livestock, dogs, cats, kids, all that. Beautiful, big, white, fluffy outdoor dog. If you're interested, just reach me at Camp Good Dog. And uh, we'll talk about that. Camp Good Dog on Facebook or look me up. You can find me. And uh, he needs a good home. So, okay. So about that, I'm a little worried that some people have gotten pets on impulse. And when the pandemic is done, there may be a mass dumping that I'm really concerned about. I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping, hoping, hoping that the pets will magically do their thing with the hearts of these humans and forever bond and they won't get dumped. What do you think is going to happen? I think we're going to get some loss. I don't think it's going to be as large as you might think. There is a problem in the fact that some people are plunging in very quickly to get a pet from a shelter or uh, uh, whatever. And a lot of these pets are secondhand and may have problems. But more importantly, with the shelters emptying out, there is an attempt made by a lot of people to grab whatever's out there. And the shelter staff, which are, you know, may normally be a bit fussy about who they give a particular dog to, are not screening as much as they, as they used to. Really? I would think they'd screen more with less pets and more families. No, there was an interesting article which indicated that the uh, staff in a lot of these humane societies are really trying to minimize uh, contact. So, Oh, yeah, I see. They don't want to meet the people. They don't want to go to their homes. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, they put as much as online uh. as they can. And you really can't tell there's this dog looking at you on a photo on the web. And, and that's not enough. I mean... It's like buying a house based on a, a house staging that you saw online, but never seeing the house of the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> it looks good. Yeah, it does. Oh, man. And there's a train station behind your garden, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. The airport. Okay, well, we're going to go for a break and come back. And I'm going to ask Dr. Corin some psychological questions when we get back because he is a professor of psychology. So we'll be talking after the break. Stay tuned on Animal Party Pet Life Radio. Pets are part of the family. Make sure you can always afford the quality health care they need with Easy Pet Check. 
a nationwide pet insurance alternative. With Easy Pet Check, you'll save up to 75% on all your pet's health care at any licensed veterinarian in the U.S. Easy Pet Check accepts all dogs and cats regardless of pre-existing conditions. Visit EasyPetCheck.com. That's the letters EZPetCheck.com. Taking care of your pet can be easy with Easy Pet Check. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Hello, we're back on Animal Party Pet Life Radio with me, Deb Wolf, your host, coming to you from Camp Good Dog. And if you want to get a look at that Pyrenees dog, Great Pyrenees, uh, one of the biggest, shaggiest, most beautiful animals in the world. And he's available to the right home, which I will vet carefully, meeting outside (laughs) at two meters distance with masks. But we will have a good, we'll make a really, really good match for this guy. And so I'm hoping if you want to get a look at him, look at Camp Good Dog Facebook. You'll see his picture there. I'll be posting it later today. Okay, so I wanted to ask you a couple of uh, psychology questions I got sent to me. And one was about swimming. Okay, so a lot of times people buy dogs and they're really hopeful that they're going to swim, right? They're boating people, they're beach people, whatever, and they want. So they buy a retriever or a retriever cross, and then the dog doesn't want to swim. So some of it, I know, is nature. Some of it is nurture. If the dog had a bad experience, there's a lot of dogs can learn to like to swim. But is there something else here? Like when I pick a puppy, if I know that people want want to swim and they want a swimming dog, I make sure I pick them one with web feet. I don't know if that's a true sign that he's going to like swimming, but I've got this question coming in from someone who had a dog, loved their dog, 15 years trying to get the dog to swim, wouldn't swim. The dog finally passed away. They're looking to get another dog and they want to know. That dog was a purebred retriever that wouldn't swim. Okay, I think that's rare. But they want to know, how can they pick a puppy that will love the water? So that's kind of a psychology question. Well, I mean, breed really is one of your best indicators, but not always. I mean, you know, as you said, psychologists refer to to dogs who love the waters as being aquaphilic and dogs who hate the water as being aquaphobic. And the aquaphilic breeds, the dogs who love the water, are dogs like the retrievers. I mean, because they've been bred for that. They've been bred to sort of jump into the water and, you know, retrieve ducks and that sort of thing. And of course, there are the big swimming dogs like the um, Newfoundland, who's probably one of the most powerful swimming dogs around. Part of the problems may arise when the dog is a puppy. I mean, if you get the dog used to it when they're a puppy, that is a guarantee that you'll uh, be able to have a dog who swims. But of course, if a dog has a bad experience, that can put the dog off from going into the water at all. I'll give you a personal example. Okay, I had a uh, flat-coated retriever uh, by the name of Odin. If he saw water you could guarantee you were bringing home a wet dog. Yeah, like a puddle, any drop everywhere, every lake, pond. I get it. I've got dogs like that. Yeah, and, and that's the way he was. And behind our little farm in, in Chilliwack, we've got a, basically it's it's a flood control ditch, but it's, it's filled with water most of the time. And there's about a 20-foot drop, something like that, a really sharp embankment. Is the water stinky and foul in this ditch? Oh, God. It (laughs) It sounds like it. 
covered with green skunk. Oh, he must just love that. Yeah. And so, so you know, he would get near that, and instantaneously I would have a dog flying through the air. And when he came back up, he was green. Okay, when Odin was just a couple of years old, I got another dog, a Nova Scotia duck calling retriever. And Dancer, like all tollers, was a breed who should adore the water. I mean, if you ever go on a doggy picnic, you know, the tollers are the ones who make the mad dash to the water. And so uh, he was very attached to Odin. He was just a puppy. And so when Odin leapt in the air, he leapt in the air, only his leap was short, and he landed on the little embankment before the, the water and then rolled into the water. Well, I came home with two green dogs, which Soggy, which of course didn't make my wife very happy. But I also came home with a puppy who from that point on would make all attempts to avoid the water. I'll make a, an admission here. I would be able to work on that slowly. Oh, I, well, I, well I, I mean, I will make an admission here. I could have solved it. I mean, I'm, I'm a psychologist yeah. and I, and a, and a dog behaviorist and I could have solved it. But in fact, I didn't because my wife used to get hysterical when I brought wet dogs in the house. And I figured I was not using him for field work. And so if he's afraid of the water, let it be. It's a dry dog. It will never annoy my wife. But you could teach him to trust the water. You could slowly, carefully, right. firmly, kindly. So it's not a throw the dog in the water kind of thing when you're trying to teach a puppy. You don't want to scare it. You want it to be happy and positive and easy and gentle. Well, there are two ways you can do it. I mean, when you have a puppy, if you've got water nearby, especially if it's water which has a little bit of a beach on it, and especially if you're dealing with a retriever, start by sort of throwing um, a retrieving toy and letting the dog chase it just on the land. And then air quotes around this, accidentally throw it so that it goes into the water. So the puppy has to go in and then a little bit further and a little bit further. And the next thing you know, you have a dog who is who is quite happily in the water. The alternative is if you've already got a dog, let's say the dog is... And, and by the way, I wouldn't do this with a dog older than three years of age. If you've got a dog, let's say, who's about a year of age and is, is not going in the water, one of the things you can do is carry the dog out just far enough so that he has to, to swim a little bit. So, you know, about up to your knees or, or a little further if it's a larger dog and just let him swim back to shore and then repeat the process a number of times. And once the dog has it in his head that, in fact, he's not going to be eaten by that big, wet beast, then the dog will very happily uh, go in the water. Uh, It takes a bit of patience, okay? This is not, as you said, you know, walk out to the end of the wharf and throw the dog in. That's the sure way to make the dog afraid, if you do that. Well, (laughs) not only afraid of the water, but but leery about you. (laughs) You, the pier, the wood, the cars, and all these things. Because once, I know you know this, but for my listeners, once a dog becomes afraid of something, oftentimes he'll extend that out. So he may at first be just afraid of, let's say, a broom hit him. Someone nasty hit him with a broom. So now he's afraid of brooms. But then he's starting to be afraid of people wearing the same shoes. And then he's starting to be afraid of anybody holding anything, which could include hockey sticks, canes, briefcases, umbrellas. It gets broader and broader and broader. But if we help them diffuse the fear, 
that doesn't happen. And they get over it and they learn that, oh, that was just a broom. Some people sweep with them. I don't need to be afraid of it every time I see it. But it takes firmness and repetition and kindness, really. Well, it's a process which psychologists call desensitization. And timing, right? Because I find with, with owners, they often reward the fear. Like the dog's maybe afraid of the stairs. A lot of puppies are, especially if they're open between slots and they can see through. So he's afraid of the stairs. So the owner's trying to be nice. And every time the dog stops on the stairs and acts scared, the owner pops a cookie in his mouth or gives him a cuddle. Well, now you have a dog being rewarded for the fear instead of overcoming the fear. And it's just like a little tiny tweak to when you give the reward. It works so If we're dealing with phobias, for example, in in people, one of the tricks which we use is sometimes we'll use a physiological monitor of some sort, because the idea is you want to, to not move so fast that you actually are getting the full fear reaction. And so it is tiny steps. I mean, for example, you were talking about dogs who are afraid of the the stairs. Well, there's a really easy way to handle that. And I call it the, rather than the 12-step program, the one-step program. Right. And, and it works like this, okay? You take the dog, and usually we're dealing with puppies in this situation, and you carry them down the steps until you're at the very last step, you put the dog there and let him go down the one step. No fear, right? Mm-hmm. Next time you're going to do it, you carry him down the stairs and you you stop two steps from the bottom and you put him there and the dog goes down the two steps and you can see the way it's going to work, right? You know, you just add more and more steps. For going up the stairs, it's exactly mm-hmm. the same thing. You carry the dog up to the very last step put the dog on that step, he's only got one step to go. And that way you gradually build up the dog's ability to go up and down stairs. In desensitization for phobias, you know, for example, suppose we have somebody who's afraid of dogs. Well, again, you know, for people, you can also have them, you know, uh, learn a little bit of a relaxation technique like rhythmic breathing or that kind of a thing. But the trick is you start out by showing them maybe a drawing of a dog at 20 feet, okay? And then you move the, the drawing closer to maybe about 10 feet or five feet or so forth until it's very close. Then you substitute that, that drawing with an actual photograph or maybe a video clip. And again, start far away and move it closer and closer and closer. And ultimately you're gonna have a dog at the end of the hallway and uh, and so forth. So it's tiny, tiny steps. I mean, this really is one foot in front of the other. And the idea here is that the person then becomes desensitized. And if you've if you've done it right, so that you haven't allowed any overt fearfulness to get into the process, it works like a charm. If you do allow any fearfulness to get in, you got to back up. You got to back all the way back several steps and and bring it up more slowly. So yeah, it takes time for sure. Um, A good example of that distancing in a dog example that you're talking about with the picture of the dog for the person who's afraid of the dog would be something like, which I get off in trains, Dogs are afraid of trains sometimes. And sometimes the owner ends up moving near the train tracks or working near the door. Some reason they got to get over it. 
And so I don't start at the train station. That's what people call or the business calls flooding, which I don't agree with. I think that's very harmful to a pet's well-being and his just general nature. If you overwhelm him just to get things done quick, I don't think that's the healthy way to go. Instead, I would start so far away from that train station that he barely reacts to the noise of the train, just barely, and have some fun with him there. And then the next time, go a little closer. And the next time, a little closer. But it takes time. It really does. So we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about setting and how that plays a role, where you are and how that plays a role with dogs because I and cats, because I find this so key to training a dog to trust again. But we'll come back and ask Dr. Corn if he agrees with that. Stay tuned. We're on Animal Party Pet Life Radio. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There's no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Radio.com, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Hello. We're back on Animal Party, Pet Life Radio. Okay, so Dr. Corden, what I mean by setting is, I'll give a couple of examples. Had a cat, went totally feral because there was some construction going on. Thought the cat was going to be wild and feral forever. Wouldn't come to me at all. Live trapped it. Brought it back in the house. Opened up the trap in our house. It went back to its old, completely tame pet house cat personality. But outside, oh, it was having none of it. It was completely feral. So that's one example. Uh, another example is Ginger, a poodle I knew, who at a young age got kicked in the face by a little girl, her best friend, doing a cartwheel. Okay, it was totally accidental. But forevermore, Ginger was afraid of feet. We were able to get her over the fear of feet by cuddling her with feet. But we started in her favorite place, her doggy bed. And then we were able to work it to other places, other places. And now she just knows to stay away from cartwheeling children at a distance, and she's no longer afraid of feet themselves. So I'm wondering, you know, these are just two examples of setting, but how important is it like with people, with dogs, with cats, if they're afraid of something, does it help to move them to a different place? Because I found it did. Yeah, you have to recognize the the principle behind all of this, okay? The principle behind all of this is a form of learning, which we call classical conditioning nothing sexy about that. Uh, the, the term conditioning is just the old word which, which psychologists used for learning, and classical is because it was the first form of learning which was systematically studied. Classical conditioning is a situation where you get an automatic response, and that automatic response to a particular stimulus, and stimulus could be anything. It can be a bell or a tone, or it can be a smile, or it can be a room. And the neat thing about 
classical conditioning, or the neat thing for psychologists at least, is the fact that anything can be conditioned. So you can use as a stimulus a person or a room as well as a bell or a tone or a word or whatever else. And it's automatic. And here's the gimmick in this. You can classically condition things which are not under our voluntary control, like emotions. So, you know, there are things which which you can think of as being classically conditioned. For example, the sound of a dentist drill for most people produces a twingy sort of a feeling. Yes, yes, I'm there with you right there. But it's so it's so personal, like a barking dog doesn't make me afraid, but it makes someone else afraid. That's right. That all has to do with your history because you see classical conditioning is not a situation uh, where you have to exert the effort to learn. It's automatic, okay? And you don't have to want to learn these things. It's just, you know, you absolutely learn this automatically. And it can be very, very fast. I don't recommend this for people, but there was an old-style dog trainer in California who wanted to teach the word no to his dogs, where no was supposed to cause a freezing so the dog would stop doing whatever it wanted. And the way that he did this is he would set up a situation, and when the dog tension was on the situation, he would take a pie tin and he would slam it on the ground and yell no. And that caused an immediate fear response in the puppy. And from that point on, whenever he yelled no, the puppy would freeze. Now, that's, as I said, don't try this at home. Uh, you know, it worked. No, what else did it cause? Did it cause the puppy to be overly anxious and untrusting and nervous and maybe have chronic health problems? Like, come on, that's just... Well, I, you know, yeah. I, I thought that it made the dogs a bit spooky and, yeah, but, you fearful. know... Be, Bill did not. And he was a famous dog trainer and, you know, trained dogs for the movies and that kind of thing. The importance of this is that it shows how quickly the learning can occur and how permanent it can be, because for these dogs, it lasted for the rest of their lives. Now, dogs become conditioned to a whole lot of things. So if a dog has had a mildly abusive set of events and by the way, I'm using abuse here in the in the general term, not just bad events from people, but you know, bad things happening. That can become conditioned to the situation in which it occurred. So that whenever they enter a situation which is similar to that, it produces the emotional response. So one of the tricks which people who are trying to take care of dog uh, problems have used is the same trick which we use when we're dealing with uh, people who have various addictions. You know, you have a person who is addicted to some sort of substance, drugs or alcohol or whatever else, and you treat them in a clinical setting. Then you set them back and the next thing you know, they're drinking again or, or, or using again. And the reason is they have gone from your nice, neat clinical setting back into the old setting, which has all of the cues which trigger the emotional responses associated with starting the self-abuse again. So very, very often the trick is, if it is possible, to get them out of that situation and never expose them to that situation again. Now, that, you know, is in many instances easier said than done. I mean, you know, you want to cure the dog of its particular problems, but you would really like to bring him back to your house 
and that sort of thing. So one of the tricks which you can use is, is you can change a few things in the house to make the room a little bit different. You know, if you can afford it, maybe change the floor covering or move the furniture around a little bit. But another trick, and, you know, we're talking about utilizing a dog's basic sensory uh, capacities, is to start to use an air freshener in the house. So a distinctive air freshener, which gives the room a different smell. Well, that's dogs. a great suggestion. That's so important to them. Yeah, and, and for dogs, since that olfactory sense is so important, that is really changing the environment. And it's even better if you can give that air freshener to that particular room and then, you know, modify it slightly every now and then by uh, bringing in some flowers or what do they call them? The old uh, potpourri kind of a thing. But it is, it is for a dog. If the room smells different, it's a different room. That's how dogs are. That's so right. that makes so much sense. And it's so easy to do. We have run out of time, Dr. Corin. So I'm going to have to end here. But I know we're scheduled to make another show really soon. So uh, <laughs> we'll continue with some of these topics. Thank you so much for joining me today. Is there anything you want to leave people with before we go? Woof, woof. Oh, okay, okay. So that was Dr. Stanley Corin. He's a professor, and uh, well, you can find him all kinds of places. Just Google him. Best-selling author, repeat guest on this program, an expert on all the breeds, and in fact, on our very next show, I'm going to ask him some questions about breeds and about psychology. So stay tuned. That'll be coming really soon. Thank you so much for listening today. And from everyone at Animal Party, Pet Life Radio, and me, Deb Wolf, be good to your animals. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs>